You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hope everyone's doing good. Uh, we have a new study today in the book of Daniel. It's going to be awesome. I don't know how long it's going to take us. It's going to take us however long it needs to take. But today we're in the first seven verses, and I am 6'5", so I'm going to raise this up a little bit, all right? You can turn your Bibles while I do this, or you can watch me do this. It's up to you. All right, that should be better. All right. So my job today is to make you excited about studying the book of Daniel and reading the book of Daniel and learning from the book of Daniel by preaching through the first seven verses here alone today. And what I hope to do as we go through the introduction to Daniel's story is to make you feel the weight of these verses, how hard they are, how ominous they are, so that you ask yourself a question like this, how are these guys going to make it? How are these young men who've been brought to this empire going to make it? How is this going to go? I hope you ask yourself those kinds of questions as we walk through this passage today, because if you ask yourself those questions, then you're ready for the rest of the book. Then you're ready for the story. Then you're ready for its message, because this, the, these first uh, uh, seven verses paint this backdrop to Daniel's life that is extremely dark. And if you're asking yourself that question, how are these guys going to make it? Then you're going to be ready for the answers that they find, the hope they discover, the message they are given. And the same question you're asking, how are these guys going to make it? And the answers that they find, you can apply to your own life. And so I want to go through these first seven verses. They they will serve as an introduction for us as we start the book of Daniel. And I, what I really want to see today is two basic points. I don't have a lot of mess, that, a lot of points to the sermon. This, this sermon is really like the kitchen sink. I'm going to throw at you a lot of information. This is a teaching-heavy uh, uh, sermon today. This is like a commentary, if you will, because I want to give you an overview and some information as we embark into the book of Daniel. So I want to show us the negatives of being in exile and the positives of being in exile. We're entitling this study uh, in the book of Daniel, Living as Exile. So what's the negative of exile? What's the positive of exile? That's what I want to show us today. So before we go ahead and jump into verse 1, let's ask God to help us and be with us. Father, we pray that you would teach us and that you would... Uh, cause us to long to be faithful to you as we live in a complex and uh, uh, crazy world. God, uh, help us to be faithful to you. Fill us with wisdom. Teach us from your word. God, we, we thank you. We praise you. And we acknowledge now that you are sovereign over all time, over all empires, over all nations, over every event of our life. Lord, you are in control and your purposes will never be thwarted. Your purposes will never be Uh, successfully opposed, because Lord, even the things that work to oppose you serve your purposes. And so we acknowledge your sovereignty, and we ask that you would uh, help us to respond to this reality that you are king over all time and over all the world. Help us to respond faithfully, Lord. Teach us in this time. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so let's talk about the negative of exile, all right? I want to paint this dark, uh, bleak picture that is painted in in these first seven verses. Let's go to verse one. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem 
And he besieged it. So we meet a few characters here in this first verse. We meet Jehoiakim, we meet Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this gives us some context for the story of Daniel's life. So here's the timing of, of when this is written. Okay, Daniel's alive uh, in the early 600s through the 500s, 6th century to the 5th, uh, 5th century BC. If you're trying to put uh, uh, Daniel on the, on the uh, where it's at in the Old Testament story, his life and these events, everything we're going to read about, is happening near the end of the Old Testament. That's where Daniel's life is at. So this is happening in the early 600s into the 500s. So he and these events would be near the end of the Old Testament. And it says that this is all beginning in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So Jehoiakim, okay, he is the king of the southern kingdom called Judah. So remember, after Solomon, right, there's Saul, there's David, there's Solomon, the three first kings of Israel, that's one nation. After Solomon, the, the nation of Israel splits into two nations. There's a northern kingdom called Israel, there's a southern kingdom called Judah. That northern kingdom, Israel, in 722 BC, is invaded by Assyria, is demolished, and deported. 722, over 100 years before any of these events, that northern kingdom Israel is gone, (laughs) demolished, uh, invaded by Assyria, taken over by Assyria. And so uh, uh, that's what's happening sort of the first 100 years before all these things. And this nation, Assyria, like all these nations we're going to talk about, are beastly, they're mean, they're brutal, and they enjoy power for years. But slowly, as time goes on, this other empire called Babylon begins to grow in power and uh, in the south, too, Egypt is still there as a powerhouse. So picture this with me, okay? In the north, above uh, Judah and Israel, there's Assyria, this beastly kingdom. There's Babylon, this kingdom that's growing in power. In the south, there's Egypt, the classic empire, uh, you know, Egypt. And there's little Judah stuck in the middle <laughs> between all of this. So what does this mean? This means that little Judah in Israel is going to be constantly caught in the crossfires of these three empires as they war and ally and go head-to-head against each other. So Judah is always going to be caught in the crossfires of all the drama that's taking place between these empires. So here's what happens, okay? Babylon begins to attack Assyria over the course of time. They begin to lay siege to Assyria and weaken them. So what Assyria does is they make an ally with Egypt in the south. They call on Egypt to come and help them against this new empire called Babylon. And on the way up north, as Egypt makes its way up north to help Assyria out, they come across Jerusalem the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. And what they do is they invade it. They take it over. Egypt becomes, uh, you know, the the, uh, powerhouse kingdom, and and Judah becomes this servant kingdom. It's it's called this king-vassal relationship where this larger, more powerful kingdom uh, imposes taxes and all these kinds of things on this little kingdom that they now possess and own because they have dominated it. That's what's happened. Egypt kicks the king off the throne and places Jehoiakim. On the throne. So we come to meet this guy, Jehoiakim. That's Egypt's choice. They put him on the throne when they invaded Jerusalem. But then in 605 BC, Babylon comes down from the north to Egypt to fight them, led by Nebuchadnezzar, and then they encounter Jerusalem and they claim it. They invade it. So now Babylon is the overlord and Jerusalem and all of Judah are now incorporated into the Babylonian empire. That's what's happening just behind this verse. Jehoiakim was a subject of Egypt and now he is a subject of Babylon. So just put all these pieces together. 
For a long time now in Judah's history, they have been caught in the crossfires of, of all this drama and all this war and the, these massive empires caught in the crossfires. There are everything going on. And for decades now, they have been captives in their own land. These larger, more powerful empires have made them vassals. But that's not all that's happening. That's pretty bad. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty stark. But look at verse 2. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. With some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them, those vessels, into the land of, uh, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So not only has Judah become subject to Babylon, that's humiliating enough. That's gut-wrenching enough. But they have been pillaged in the most shameful and grievous ways. The items from their very temple, these holy sacred furnishings, have been taken and put in the pagan temple in Babylon. So God, Yahweh, this temple, right, that means so much to, to Judah is their very sense of self. It's their national pride. It's the locus point of their, of their self-esteem. It's been pillaged. And Yahweh, their God, has been made to look inferior because now his items have been brought into this pagan temple. And now he's just one of the many gods that Babylon worships. This is what uh, empires would commonly do when they would invade a weaker empire to show their superiority. They would show their religious and spiritual superiority by making their gods or their way of thinking, their religion, more powerful, better, superior than yours. So that's what's happening here. And this point is dramatized even more in this really key phrase. I want you to underline, if you underline in your Bibles, it says, they brought these things back to the land of Shinar. It's a really weird phrase because we're talking about Babylon here. So what is this? What is this uh, region? What's this language? What does it mean? Okay, this is Daniel. He's writing this. He's trying to make the reader remember the origins of Babylon. Like, where did this beastly, wicked, domineering empire come from? The land of Shinar, the origins, if you were to, you know, search in your Bibles, that finds its origin all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. You remember all the nations of the world are gathered in one plain, one area to build a tower that ascends to heaven, thereby communicating that we don't need divine aid in order to reach the heavens and connect with God. We can do that on our own. That's what the Tower of Babel was. That's what they were trying to communicate in that act. It's happening, it says in Genesis 11, in the, in the plain of Shinar, in the land of Shinar. And so God, in judgment, confuses their languages and disperses it. And that's why it is called the Tower of Babel, because Babel literally means confused. He confuses their language. Babylon, this dark, brutal empire, finds its origin uh, in its name, and its location all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 in the land of Shinar in that first great act of rebellion. So here's what Daniel's trying to communicate by by putting that little phrase in there, that Babylon is representative. It's the epitome of an empire that is in opposition, arrogant rebellion opposition to God that works against God. That's what Babylon is, and that is who's winning. That is who is proving their superiority right now over God and his people. Okay? That's not all. The dominion continues. Look at verse 3 through 6. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the, here we go, look at this, of the royal family and of the nobility, 
youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, who can understand learning, competent to study in the king's palace, and teach them, look, what? The literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans, just so you know, that's like the... It's like if you were to say, I live in Great Britain, but I'm English. Chaldeans live in Babylon. It's the cultural name of the people who reside there. That's what it means to be Chaldean. So the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and end the time stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. That's really important. So this is, in this, this first of invasion, remember what I said, in 605, Babylon invades Judah, invades Jerusalem, uh, deports people in this first invasion back to Babylon. Just a sidebar here, just to give you kind of a, a quick context for, for how this plays out. In 597, about 10,000 people were deported, and in 586, finally, all of Jerusalem is just waylaced. The temple is completely destroyed. So this is the first deportation and invasion of three total that will happen throughout Daniel's lifetime. But in this first one, only the nobility, the intellectual community, the royal community, those are the ones who are deported only in this first invasion in 605 BC. And notice that Daniel and his friends are of the what? The line of Judah. That's the kingly line, the royal line. So this means that Daniel and his friends, they were destined, they were supposed to be Judah's future political hope. These guys would be future officials. These guys would be future advisors to kings or even maybe in kings and rulers themselves in Judah. They embodied, they were Judah's future hope. This is their security. They're the best of the best. They represent what it means to be Hebrew, what it means to be Judean. And now they're taken. They're taken away into Babylon. This is a huge punch to the gut. So not only is... Judah invaded. Not only is Babylon showing they're superior, but they're also taking from Judah the best of the best, their, their future, their sense of security, their future political hopes. More than that, though, what we see here is what? They are recultured. These, these four young men are recultured, the best and the brightest. They're, they're uh, assimilated into the Babylonian way, into the Chaldean culture. They are to spend three years learning the language and literature. Essentially, those who were representative of Judean culture are now Babylonian in culture. Those who were the best and brightest that Judah had to offer were taken by Babylonian, by Babylon and recultured. This is a show of superiority. And think about this, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, who's doing all this and leading this effort, he's smart. He's a smart king. What, what his long game is here is to take the, the, the uh, royal family, those, into the, those of the intellectual community, bring them back to Babylon, brainwash them, assimilate them, so that what? So that he has future envoys who he can send back to this uh, little nation that he has command of and have good international relationship with them. With, with their own people, whose new commitment, whose new pledge and allegiance is to Babylon. So this is all uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon's way of showing their superiority, of taking away any sense of future hope, any sense of future optimism that Judah would have. Then, to punctuate the point that Babylon is dominating, look at verse 7. It says, The chief of the eunuchs gave them names, Daniel, Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. So not only are these friends recultured, they are redefined. Remember, a name back in this time in the ancient Near East, names 
it meant everything. It forecast your destiny, it defined who you were, it gave you your purpose in life. These four Hebrew names, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, are all Hebrew names that have something to do with Yahweh, that they're names that pay homage to God. The new names that they're given, they all pay homage to Babylonian gods. So you can't think of a more debilitating and degrading thing to occur to these four young men, to Hebrews in their culture, and to this nation, Judah. So what can we conclude? That Judah, especially these four young men, have their backs against the wall. It is looking, it's looking bad. It's looking bleak. They are now with the new minority in a major and a pagan majority. They are now exiles from their homeland and forced to exist in this new world. Let me read what one commentator, how he writes it, how he sums up. This is the story so that he tells of what this whole transition would be like, what this, what, what's on the, you know, what, what, what would be happening in these, in these young men's minds. Here's what he says. The Bible does not tell us about the journey that they would have, have to make from Jerusalem to, Jerusalem to Babylon. Undoubtedly, this was a sad and miserable time for these young Jewish captives. The journey from Jerusalem to Babylon would have amounted to roughly 680 miles if we assume that they marched along one of the northern trade routes through Damascus and then down through the Euphrates River. As they neared the end of their long and arduous journey, the glorious specter of the ancient city of Babylon began to appear on the horizon. Babylon was a city larger, more fortified, more ornate than anything the Hebrew youths had ever seen. Through the, through the city ran the mighty Euphrates River, the lifeline of Mesopotamia. As they drew closer, there was a large bridge for them to cross before entering one of the many glorious gates of the city. Just imagine how intimidating the scene must have been for these Hebrew youths. Walking across the bridge that spanned the Euphrates, thousands of Babylonians would have been lining the tops of the city walls. Probably they were laughing and hurling insults at the conquered Hebrews. From the crowd, someone might have yelled, foolish Hebrews, now you learn to trust in Marduk, one of our gods. Daniel had not chosen to be here. He was only the victim of circumstances, powerless in himself to change what was happening. From this point on, his life would never be the same. He was forced to leave behind his parents and family, his beloved Jerusalem, and the Hebrew culture with its focus upon the worship of Yahweh at the beautiful temple of Solomon. These things would never be seen again. For the rest of his life, he would be resident of Babylon, probably only a young man of 15 years at this time. He now faced the daunting challenge of remaining faithful and true to God while living in the midst of an idolatrous and pagan civilization. So how are they going to make it? <laughs> how are they going to endure for the long haul? And I hope you're asking yourself that question. Because if you are, we're going to find the answers as we embark and make our way through the book of Daniel. So I can't preach the rest of the book right now. That's what the next many months are for, is to go through this book and find out the answers. How are these guys going to make it? But what I want to do now is I want to show us sort of a forecast what, you know, is ahead of us? I want to give you a teaser for the rest of the book and what waits for us. So although there's this, there's the negative aspect of exile, how difficult and complex it is, there are also some positives of exile. And they're here and located in these first seven verses. There's a few rays of sun that are beaming through the clouds, that are beaming through the darkness. And so I want to look at these first seven verses again and just pick out a few things that give us a forecast for what's ahead of us. Here's the two positives, if you're writing things down. The two positives of exile are this. 
God's sovereignty and our response. While we are in exile, God is sovereign. And while we are in exile, we must respond to that grand reality that God is sovereign. So let's first look at God's sovereignty. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. Go back, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Remember, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But look what it says next. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with all those vessels of the house of God. The phrase worth emphasizing here is that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What we should see is that God is not defeated, that Babylon, it's, it's not superior. Nothing is happening that God hasn't planned. Nothing is taken that is not given. So in his sovereignty, God allows this. God purposes this. This is all a part of God's plan. Now the question is why, though? Why in the world would God allow his people, who he loves, to be besieged, his temple? Why would he allow it to be violated, defiled? Why would he allow all these things? What's going on here? And here's the, here's the reason. Discipline. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, you'd see this list of blessings for obedience and list of curses for disobedience. And essentially, if you're going to summarize what the curses of disobeying God is for his covenant people, it's this, death. Death is what awaits disobedience for God's people. Now look, we, okay, with our Western minds, think death is we're talking about you know, literally mortality. Biblically, though, that's not what death is, not primarily. Death is exile. Death is alienation from God's presence. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But what happens when they do? They don't drop dead. They're separated. They are exiled from the Garden east of Eden. Death, what we mean by that is spiritual death that eventually ends in physical death, but death is already long before occurring. And so what is, what's happening here? Discipline that, that God told his people would take place. Exile is what's happening. But listen, this discipline is not just, it's not punitive. Meaning it's not that God's just trying to teach them a lesson like, ah, oh, you did bad and I'm, I'm going to drop the hammer now. It's not punitive. Discipline is always corrective. Here's what God is doing by allowing this deportation, this exile to take place for a time. He is telling Israel, the two things, Israel, uh, Judah, that you've always done, idolatry and injustice. Those are the reasons why they were exiled. That's the, that, that's the, that's the form of their disobedience, idolatry and injustice. He's saying, I want you, my people, Judah, to see just how bad this can get. Just how monstrous and, and, and distorted idolatry and injustice is. I'm going to teach you that by placing you right in the thick of an empire that embraces idolatry and embraces injustice, that celebrates these two things so that you never do them again. So that you're persuaded in your own lived experience that idolatry and injustice, it's settling. It's regrettable. <laughs> it will not make you happy. And so discipline, why? Because he loves them. Because he wants something better for them. He wants to teach them, persuade them that there is a better way than the way they are choosing. And that's why God allows all this to take place for corrective discipline because he loves his people. We're going to see that as we go through this. Uh, But another detail I want to mention in these these first few verses is it says, and I know it's a really easy phrase to look over, but it starts by saying, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. In the third year. Now, all throughout the book of Daniel, there are all these time stamps 
that, that, that locate the story where it's happening in history and talks about in chapter 2, verse 1, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 7, the first year of Belshazzar, chapter 8, third year of King of Belshazzar, 9, first year of the reign of Darius, 10, third year of Cyrus, King of Persia, 11, first year of Darius the Mede, so on and on and on and on and on. Daniel uses this, these timestamps to locate us in the story. But it's not only just to um, tell us that this is a historical book. Remember, originally, there are, there are no chapters and verses in the Bible originally. Those are added in later and they're helpful, but originally the authors of the Bible, they didn't use chapters and verses to give the structure and breakdown to their story. What they did is they gave us things like these repeated phrases like this that helps us see that there's a structure and an organization to their entire book. And when you see the structure, when you see the structure and organization, then you can more easily discern the message, the message that the author is trying to to give. So I want to get very intellectual here for just a moment and show you that when you step back and look at these timestamps, there's actual, there's an actual uh, uh, bird's eye over, uh, um, structure the whole entire book. And when you know the structure, you can see the message. It's behind me. I'm going to read this just very quickly. But Daniel 1 starts with exile. Daniel 2 has a dream with four kingdoms that mention an everlasting dominion. Daniel 3 talks about, has a story about being delivered from the furnace. Daniel 4, a king, Nebuchadnezzar, is humbled. Daniel 5, a king, Belshazzar, is humbled. Daniel 6, another story of deliverance from the lion's den. Daniel 7 through 9, another dream sequence, these visions where there's four kingdoms mentioned and an everlasting dominion that's mentioned. And then Daniel ends in chapters 10 through 12, talking about return from exile. You see the consistency. You see the, the, the coherence in the story. It starts with exile, ends with exile, and the whole story is... Um, has these sequences of dreams with kings being humbled. See this. And so what are we supposed to make of this? This is the message of the story of Daniel. Here, here's what it is. But that between the time of exile and the return from exile, there will be a series of human kingdoms. And in spite of their attempts to oppose God and his people, God and his people will triumph and will ultimately triumph on the day that the Son of Man establishes his kingdom. If you were to follow the whole flow of the book, that whole chart right there, that's what you would see, that between the beginning of exile and the end of exile, there are human kingdoms that oppose God, but it does not work because God and his people will ultimately triumph. That's essentially what the message of the book of Daniel is. I want to say one sidebar thing here. I didn't know where to fit this. I'm just going to say it right now, okay? Uh, in the book of Daniel also, okay, there is this, these literal historical time stamps that are added, right, during these kings and their reign and the, the, the parts of their reign, right? There's literal historical times, but also in the book of Daniel. It's, highly a, it's a highly symbolic book. There's all this prophecy and these visions and, and revelations in the book of Daniel. And what you'll find in those sequences is there's a lot of uh, time measures given, that are all riddles. They're all symbols that need to be cracked. They're codes that need to be cracked because they tell us what's going to happen later on in Daniel's lifetime, what's going to happen later on uh, when, the new, when the Jesus return, uh, arrives the first time, and what's still yet to happen in the future of the world. And so I just want to say that too, that there's these literal time events that are occurring, but there's also many 
uses of symbolic measures of time in the book of Daniel. So you can essentially see that what threads the whole book of Daniel together is this emphasis upon the fact that God is sovereign over our times. Historically, present, future, God is sovereign over all time and all people, and nothing can thwart his purposes. So God is sovereign. That's what Daniel shows us. And that should now determine how we live, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't God's sovereignty determine how we live as exiles, knowing that this is not our final home? So how, how should we respond to the fact that God is sovereign? So if you're looking for application today, you know, this, it's been very teaching heavy. This is the part where we talk about application. This is what awaits for us. This is the main thrust of the book as we apply it to our lives. So here's our response. There's four things that we need to do in response to the fact that God is sovereign, okay? One, Hear me out on each of these, okay, so you can understand what I mean fully. One, here's what we do because God is sovereign over our time. We occupy culture. I want us to see that we occupy culture because God is sovereign. It says in chapter 1, I'll explain what I mean. It says in chapter 1 that Daniel's friends, they learned the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. You remember that? It says that they learned it. Now in chapter 2, what we're going to see is that there's these magicians there's these enchanters and sorcerers that serve in the king's presence, that serve in his, uh, as royal advisors. Uh, they're summoned to interpret this dream that the king has, and they can't do it. And so what happens is the king makes this edict that all sorcerers, all of, of these kinds of people are going to be put to death. And Daniel and his friends are included in that group, meaning although they're not sorcerers, <laughs> although they're not enchanters, they're not those, they're not those, they're in the category of. They would be found with those people, meaning that Daniel and his friends, although they worship Yahweh, although they are Hebrew, however you want to say, although they're different, they're right in the thick of the culture. Where those people who are influencing culture and shaping culture, that's where Daniel and his friends can be found. They're categorized, grouped with all these kinds of people, even though they're different. Now we might think, those things are bad. (laughs) sorcerers, magicians. Those things are ungodly. That's true. But Daniel's friends, they don't flee. They don't hide. They don't isolate themselves. They're within the culture, not in the perimeter of the culture, right in the thick of it. In fact, we know that Daniel and his friends are occupying culture right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it, because Daniel's friends, those those, uh, Babylonian names they're given, remember that? All throughout this book, they retain those names. There's often times in this book that, that they use those names. They identify with the culture. They're found in the culture. They occupy the culture. In fact, later on in Daniel's life, at the end of his life, when a new king of Persia comes and invades, we'll get there, and releases all of, of those who've been deported and exiled back home, Daniel stays. He remains in Persia. Why? Because Daniel knew that his what he was meant to do was to occupy culture, not flee from it, not leave from it, not when it, not when it got convenient to duck out, take the safe option, but stay and remain and occupy it. Now, this is important, okay? Because we, I think, often say things like, oh, culture is so bad. Culture is uh, heading down a bad path. Culture is so secular. And we need to be careful we say things like this because culture is not bad. Culture is good. Culture is formed by things like art, by things like literature, like things like philosophy, okay? Those things in and of themselves are not bad. They are what shape and form and cultivate culture. They can be taken and used for wrong things, for false things, for immoral things, certainly, but 
Culture in and of itself is not bad, and we as exiles are called to remain in it, in the thick of it, and use these things that God has given us, like art and literature and philosophy, whatever it may be, use those to redeem. We are meant to be agents of cultural renewal, not flee from it, not leave from it, not to be on the perimeter away from it all, but right in the thick of it like Daniel and his friends. Because that's what exiles do who believe that God is sovereign. They keep their place in culture. They keep their place at the table and use the things that God has given them to be agents of renewal within the culture. So we occupy the culture. But here's what I want us to see next. Here's what Daniel and his friends are going to show us throughout this book. We occupy culture with excellence with excellence. Look at verses 17 through 20, chapter 1, 17 through 20. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit. That's all right. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them uh, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And then in chapter 2, Daniel stands out amongst all of his advisors as the best, as the wisest in the king's court. So here's what we see from Daniel's example and from his friend's examples. As exiles, we occupy culture, but we do it with excellence. We don't occupy culture merely just to like offer this countercultural brand, this competing product against the culture. We don't occupy culture just to make a competing brand. We occupy culture to offer something better, not just separate, but better. So we occupy culture with excellence. Martin Luther, who many of you learned about this morning, says this, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So look, we don't uh, occupy the culture in order to make Christian films, in order to make Christian t-shirts, in order to make Christian music. No, we occupy culture in order to make a product, an art, a, a thing, a brand, whatever it may be, that is better than all those within the culture. We're not, yeah. Of all artists, of all thinkers, of all entrepreneurs, of all, of all leaders, however you want to say it, however you describe yourself, after all, don't we have the best source there is for inspiration? Don't we have the best resource available to create something that is meaningful, that is beautiful, that is attractive, that is magnetizing? Don't we, don't we of all people have the source that can do that and make something better? power of the gospel and the wisdom of God's truth should not be kept to ourselves in this false dichotomy of sacred and secular, where we try to keep our product and our way of doing things separate from the culture. No, we occupy culture with excellence so that what we do and what we produce and what we say and how we live makes its way into the world through our creativity and leadership and capacities, and it produces a way of life. It produces something that is better than all the rest. And here's why this is important. This is why this point is timely for us as well. We preach the gospel with words, okay? Don't hear me say that's not, absolutely, that's essential. We must preach the gospel with words, but listen. Occupying the culture with excellence, this is the future of evangelism and apologetics. 
because long gone are the days where your neighbors and your friends and some people in your family view life and the world the same as you. Your friends and your neighbors no longer share the same premise as you about morality, about truth. You can say anything you want about what you believe, and they're going to say, oh, I'm glad that works for you. That's what it is. We can't just argue people into conversion. We can't just argue people into changing their minds. That's not merely going to work. We have to do something more. And what is that? We have to show those around us that there's something distinctly different and attractive and wonderfully strange about us in the way we live and in the way we work and the way we live and have our being. We must occupy culture with excellence so that our words have power because our lives have power. See? So we occupy culture with excellence. In other words, our goal is not only to convert. It is. The first is to show and to demonstrate that there's something different, that there's something meaningful, that what we have others would want. Okay? So we occupy culture with excellence, but here's the third point, and this is important because if you don't get this point, it won't work. We occupy culture with excellence, but without compromise. Without compromise. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all occupying their place in culture with excellence, but they also resolved to never compromise, to never defile themselves. We'll see this next week in Daniel chapter 1. They resolved not to defile themselves. And look, this did not make life easy for them. Do you know why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into that fiery furnace? It's because they wouldn't compromise. Do you know why Daniel went into the lion's den? It's because he wouldn't compromise. But do you know what God did in each of those instances? He preserved them. And do you know what happened after God preserved each of those men? They were promoted. (laughs) They were promoted. In the same way, if we are faithful, if we don't compromise, if we maintain our integrity, God preserves us. God keeps us. And how we start and what we believe and the values we hold, whatever it may be, Although those things at first to people might be very polarizing, if you continue, if you are faithful, if you do not compromise, by the end of it all, they're going to see <laughs> there's something different about them. There's something unique about them. God preserves us. He provides for us. Now listen, let me tell you the fundamental reason why you might compromise. As you occupy your place and culture with excellence, here's the reason why you might compromise. You might compromise if anything becomes bigger to you than God. So if that place in culture becomes so necessary for you, if you derive your sense of worth, if you derive your purpose from what you do, or or if you derive your sense of self-esteem and your sense of worth from how good your product is or how excellent what you do is, when it's hard, when you're challenged, when there's tension, you will compromise. But... It's the love of God and how he delights in you and how awesome and amazing and great he is. If those things are larger than life to you, then you'll maintain your integrity and you will not compromise because you're saying, I can release anything as long as I have God. But listen, that's not the case. If you, if you, make, if you make a mistake and confuse your place and culture and the standard which, with which you are to conduct yourself, if you make those things your idol, you will compromise if you make honoring God and being faithful to God your goal, then you will not. So, occupy culture with excellence, without compromise, and lastly, in love. We do it in love. 
See, when we talk about culture, which we're going to talk about a ton as we go through the book of Daniel, it's easy to drift into this us versus them mentality, isn't it? Uh, this culture war mentality. And that mentality is problematic, and here's why. Because it, it's, it's fearful, <laughs> and it's, it's combative, and it's cynical, it's critical, and it's easily frustrated. But if we love others, those who disagree with us, who don't see life the same, if we, love every, if we love those people, if we love the people that God's placed around us, then we don't hate, we don't see others as the enemy. We are hopeful, we are compassionate, we are patient. And that's what Daniel models. When Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, here's what I find it incredible. All of these kings in the book of Daniel they're wicked men. They're brutal men. They have no problems doing terrible, brutal things to other people. But when Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, King Darius, the Persian king, it says in Daniel chapter 5 that he's up all night fasting because he's anxious. And when he wakes up in the morning, when the sun breaks through the tree line, he runs to the lion's den to see if Daniel's still alive. And when he finds that Daniel's alive, it says that he's exceedingly glad. Now, what kind, what's happening here to make such a brutal, heartless man be like that? It must be only because he loves this old man, because <laughs> he has a relationship with Daniel. Why? Because Daniel occupies culture with excellence, but without compromise, and over the long haul, that has proved valuable. That genuineness and sincerity has done something to that relationship where now this wicked, brutal, pagan king loves this old man. Listen, if we catch this vision, okay, that the book of Daniel is going to communicate to us and take it and run with it, over time, here's what's going to happen to us. Your friends in your life who completely, maybe even violently disagree with you about things you believe, they'll say to themselves, I don't see life the same way. And in fact, the things they believe, they annoy me and they frustrate me, but I shudder. They would say this about you if you do this, if we catch this. They'd say, I shudder to think about what my life would look like if they were absent. I shudder to think about what my neighborhood would look like if they were absent. I shudder to think about what our office, what our city would look like if they were absent. That's what living as exiles, responding to God's sovereignty will do. It makes our life attractive and it makes our place in people's lives invaluable. It's pretty incredible. We have an incredible story ahead of us. But listen, I want to end, okay, with this one thing. It's hard to fit the gospel, <laughs> into a sermon like this, where we're just giving an overview and it's very uh, teaching heavy. But listen, we're talking about being occupying culture with excellence without compromise and in love. How are we going to do that? You need a power to do that. It's hard. So what's going to be the strength? What's going to energize us to do that for the long haul only if you realize that these exact same things that, that, that is expected of us, Jesus did for us. He lands right in the middle of culture, <laughs> occupies it with excellence, with perfection, with innocence, with righteousness, never compromises, and in love, he dies for us. He gives his life for us. Only We can only do this if that moves into the center of your life and becomes everything to you. Only if the gospel moves in the center of, you, of your life can we live as exiles faithfully. And so I hope that as we go through the book of Daniel, that this vision for what he uh, lives and embodies and forecasts 
becomes instructive for us and hopeful for us. Let's go ahead and pray and end. God, we thank you for your word, although something written ages ago in a different time, in a different culture, a different empire. Lord, it's still so instructive for us and necessary for us. And so I pray as we embark into this book study together that you would be with us, open our minds, that you would uh, show us your way of doing things, Lord, and convince us to be faithful to you. We thank you for Jesus who left the glory of heaven, became an exile, and gave his life for us so that now we can live for you. We pray that you be with us in this time as we study this book. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.